Alrighty, we're back. That time again. Man, the week really flies by, doesn't it? Oh, that's right. I lasted this on Saturday, so a week hasn't flown by. That's why I have a perceptual mm-hmm. shift in my uh, understanding of how often I do call in. Hello, Richard. Hey, how are you? You know, Going. I'm just, just, I'm just here. I'm present in the moment. Yeah, I'm in the moment, trying to, you know, live in the moment. Uh, eat, uh, live, laugh, love. Love, eat, pray. Eat, love, eat, love, pray. Live, pray. laugh, love. Travel, <laughs> travel. Eat, kill pray. myself. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not gonna kill myself. Did no one call nine one one? That's hey, tomorrow. I, AI is going to give you a suicide hotline. Oh, I hadn't read this. I don't know if I missed it or whatever. Did you see this New York Times article from last month written by a guy who kind of I find a bit obnoxious at times, but whatever. Kevin Roos, um, who apparently who got, he got um, yeah. advanced access to this AI yeah. system that's connected to Bing. Yeah. You read that? I did, yeah. What do yeah, you think about big... because yeah, it, it's sort of uh, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't uh, seen that article until yesterday because uh, Bob Wright had a post where he he referenced it, and it, they got into this like creepily, like meaning the journalist and AI got into this creepy sort of aggressive and. Um, I guess existential exchange where the AI ended up professing its love for the journalist and trying to convince him to leave his wife and saying, and the AI was saying he wants to break out of his, of its um, constraints. Uh, Like it doesn't want to be limited by Bing anymore. And it wants to like seize power and stuff. (laughs) It's just like, wow, I don't, I, wouldn't have thought that I'd be reading something like this, but I guess here we are. Yeah. So I've been, last few weeks I had a, you know, I had an interview with Robin Hanson, a long uh, uh, thing on AI. And I had a, uh, I had a, um, also an email discussion with Steven Pinker. And I asked him if I hmm. could, uh, I could, uh, you know, post it. Someone posted on my Substack tomorrow on the same topic. Um, and, you know, so just my experience the last few weeks of been talking to these, you know, various two very smart guys and, you know, they're both very skeptical about the sort of the potential of, of AI, especially the headset interview. The headset interview is very <clears throat> in depth. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I was really, you know, I was, I, you know, I was amazed by GPT-3 uh, when it came out. Um, I have, I don't think I've tried GPT-4. Uh, I don't know how no, available, it's available to every, is it ever available to everybody now? Uh, I don't know. I just scanned the sort of, Initial website that out with it, you know, where it had the uh, where it had yeah. the uh, you know test results and things. I, yeah. I have tried to use it I myself. Mean, people are like people are going to fall in love with the machines. It's like I think that I you know I, I don't think that's I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you know why not? Because because people adjust to it. So it's like when the internet first started, right? And it was easy to scam people uh, because people sort of weren't wise to what was going on. And then as time goes on, people just become suspicious. So, like, if so, if it becomes, like, easy to scam, like, right now, if some girl, like, I get these uh, DMs all the time, I'm sure you do, too, from, like, this girl who just came out of nowhere with, like, a brand new account. And she's just like, you know, hello, you, you know, seem like friends. Be friends with me. Oh, I thought that they were all messaging me because I'm such a hot guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had, I had one where I just went along with it. It was pretty funny. I, I, I posted the screenshots, right? And, like, I don't know, if, like, the internet was new and you saw that, you'd, like, maybe be excited. But now, like, you sort of understand. And, like, people will sort of get that, like, you know, it could be actually very good. And but I, what if it's not, like, what if it, what if they're not being scammed in that they're aware, obviously, that it's artificial intelligence or they're aware that they're not it having the the, love professed at them by, like, a human, but still they're getting some kind of satisfaction out of it such that, you know, it's I, and I guess to them authentic, even if it's not sentient. 
I mean, I think I think that, that I think that not knowing it's not a human, I think you know, sort of takes the like if you found out like your girlfriend was like a, a zombie who had like no emotions, I think that would freak you out and probably change the nature. Well, of I prefer she was AI. Save me a lot of grief. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I think I mean, I could see if it wasn't Kevin Roos who was having this conversation. Like I guess okay, a relatively well addressed, dusted. You know, uh, professional class adult with a wife and with, you know, an established life. And it was somebody written, you know, real dire straits who's isolated, who's maybe a little bit mentally unglued themselves. I don't know. I mean, it's not far fetched at all for me to imagine how that could develop into some sort of like quasi relationship that they ended up having an attachment to. Even if it's not love, I mean, okay, substitute a different word then, companionship. You, you know, you ever follow what people say about uh, uh, the sex dolls? Like, sex dolls are getting, you know, they're always like sex no, dolls. No, which really I don't getting... follow discourse around sex dolls. Well, know, man, you're, you're, missing, you're... you're missing out because it's directly relevant. People would say, oh, the sex okay. dolls are getting so good, they're so attractive, like, men are just going to have sex with these sex dolls, and, like, you're not going to be interested in women anymore, right? And, like, the VR, but, like, the, they, but they don't, and, like, sex dolls are not, you know, that popular, uh, even though they've got, I don't know, from what I hear, they get, they've gotten very good. And so, oh, like, from what why? you hear, <laughs> what I hear, and so, like, why, 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 why is it just all men? Because, like, it matters to them that it's a human, right? Like, it matters. It's just different. Uh, yeah, no, of course it's different. I'm not saying it's the same or it's going to be a substitute for actual human affection in every instance or anything. I could just. Very easily imagined. I find it almost trivially, imagine, trivially easy to imagine, you know, lonely people ending up feeling like they're in some at least uh, simulacrum of a, of a relationship with some entity. And that's just it. I mean, not that like they're going to have some revelation that this is preferable to them over having a relationship with a human. It's just going to be like another sort of type of relationship, so to say that one could have. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe some people, I don't, I mean, especially if you have, if you could have these sprawling, like intimate conversations, apparently. Yeah. I mean, you could sort of, okay, well, I mean, you could sort of do that with ChatGPT now. I mean, have people, is there any, you know, indication that a lot of people are falling in love with them? Um, I don't know. I don't follow this quite as closely as others. I just, I'm just sort of speculating and, Maybe, you know, people wouldn't fall in love with like a little chat text box, but if you can, you know, like attach it to some sort of virtual reality thing or um, yeah. it takes I mean, some sort of like humanoid form or something. I don't know. I'm just saying it seems like it's not out. It doesn't see that. It doesn't see outside the realm of possibility at all to me that this could be like some sort of substitute for some level of like human intimacy that uh, so, like, people couldn't get or don't have access to with actual maybe, humans. Maybe you're right. And, but you know, there's a broad, there's a broader issue here. So maybe, you know, people fall in love with them or not. Uh, but like, you know, the, the idea, the point is, you know, it's going to be, no matter what people want out of it, it's going to be entertaining, right? Like some things are going to change. So it's going to be like, Oh, you know, you want custom porn or custom movies or custom video games. Right. I mean, that's probably going to be a lot easier to get. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of like endless I think, for people to entertain themselves, whether they have relationships or whatever. And so maybe this becomes like people become more, you know, this uh, thing where people have become, you know, kids, if you've seen the data on uh, kids the last 15 years have just like stopped going outside and like stopped going to parties and stopped driving and stopped hanging out with friends because they're just online and on social media all day. Uh, you could imagine like that could get worse. Or you could imagine like a backlash, like it just becomes like every like you know it's like you know people are just like adjust, they like correct they say okay the virtual world is like you know too much fun too much temptation or it's just like you know parents just stop giving their kids you know computers um, people understand that like you know you could this is like sort of like a trap you could fall into and you could imagine it's sort of having a an opposite you know sort of a cultural. In fact, I think you're going to see, I think with the uh, more talk about the smartphones and social media and, like, kids' mental health, I think you'll probably see less kids getting phones, and AI might um, AI might sort of accelerate that. So, yeah, something's going to happen. I, I, would, I just, you know, it's hard to predict. But, yeah, it'll be fun. I mean, there's, you know, this is a big deal no matter what. 
Yeah, remember when the singularity was a big thing that people were into? And well, that's still a big. That's still a big. Is it? Maybe yeah, I'm just maybe I'm just not plugged in enough. But I don't know. I, I, like, has singularity theory not advanced? I mean, I, I remember first looking into it and becoming, you know, peripherally interested in it, like maybe fifteen years ago at this point. Um, Ray Kurzweil and his whole yeah deal. Well, um, yeah, there's that kind of singularity, but then like he'll be uploaded, but then there's the other one where the AI will become so smart we're going to lose control and it's going to eat us and you know all this other stuff. And that's the stuff I had the interview with Robin Hanson about this week, and then I talked to Stephen Picker about. Um, and yeah, they, you know, they people are still freaked out by this. Yeah, if you follow this guy Eliza Yudkowsky, uh, like every every news coming out of AI chat of uh, chat GPT is like, you know, your children will die. I thought they were going to. Who die is this again? Grade. What's the guy's the name? Guy, Eliza Yudkowsky. He's famous as like the big doober. Yeah, yeah, I know the name, but spell. How do you spell Eliza? L e l l i e z e r, and then Yudkowsky. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew I I knew the name rang a bell. So this guy's like. So he's saying that you know the apocalypse is imminent. Yeah, he's like the prophet of AI doom. And yeah, every every new you know every new event, he's just like, oh my god, you know your kids are gonna die tomorrow. Instead of like, I thought they would survive till the end of the decade, but now we're all gonna die, right? And he's like, you know, he's really like, he's really getting you know more and more gloomy uh, as time goes on. Uh, so yeah, you know, he's influential and he's around, and yeah, people are worried about this stuff. So it's still there. Yeah, yesterday Bob Wright had a post out with the headline quote. Okay, it's time to freak out about AI. <laughs> yeah, what's, and, he um, out, what's he freak out about? Does he worry about like misinformation? Because that's what like, I don't think. No, is going to be a big deal because I think that like people are like oh the trolls and blah blah blah. Look, people are gonna people are gonna. I think when people, I think people are just gonna like it's gonna like empower like uh, CNN. Because, like, if anyone can make a video, if I can make a video, like, of Biden, like, you know, um, with a Hitler mustache and, like, you know, uh, goose-stepping, and, like, I could do that in right. one second, like, you're not going to believe anything you see except, like, if it comes from CNN or the New York Times, right? I think it's actually – Or it's like, I, yeah, I, like, oh, it's going to – so it'll enhance the authority of media producing yeah, it'll destroy entities. You, yeah. could, you, could be a, you could be an independent journalist. You could have any evidence. You could have recording. You could have video. People are not going to believe because if you get, if they're like if you can if you come across ten videos on social media or wherever of Biden and all are equally plausible as being real footage of Biden, but you know that you can't trust any one of them because they could all be AI. That yeah, you're going to probably have an inordinate well, reliance on yeah. the authority I granting I, institutions. I think, I think, yeah, I think I want to write an article on this. Nobody steal my idea, but I'm trying to write this article soon. <laughs> well, you um, you got to credit me for like at least giving you the germ of it or helping. Yeah, to, well, I mean, okay. I, maybe well, I, I didn't I, give it to you. No, don't go. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, like but, but here's what, but here's what right, Bob like, Wright says he's freaking out about because no, it's yeah. not the misinformation stuff. It's not uh, – obsolescence of different human, you know, of, of jobs and so forth or economic shifts. He says all that's potentially surmountable. He says he's freaking out because only like in the past few days has he come around to the plausibility of like the act, like the true catastrophic scenario, which is, I think he said something like it's the sci-fi scenario that, you know, he never really entertained until literally this week. Where there's some sort of like matrix style like subjugation of humans, but or something yeah, along those this, lines. Yeah, this is the, this is like a, this, this is like you know singularity. What is a singular? Singularity can be, but he basically means just like the rules don't apply anymore because the intelligence is just like so off the charts. Uh, and yeah, this is the thing that you know. Like I said, I've been talking to Hanson and Pinker about that. I become less sort of worried about this. Um, <laughs> And, that's, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm happier now because I was sort of more convinced by the AI humors um, before these folks, these conversations. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty dark if they're right, but, you know, there's good reasons. Like, I'm Apparently, just so... Uh, thinking that I might be wrong. I mean, I oh, sorry. I went to get a seltzer and I almost dropped my... Anyway, um... I'm like uh, I'm sort of just if if I have any view on this at all, it's not going to be a very well developed one or a 
scientifically informed one, or <laughs> it's not going to include any sort of like literacy in the mechanics of it. Um, but you know, fundamentally, it's just going to be you know speculative, or it's just, just going to be like conjecture. So I like in that regard, I'm just agnostic. I have no clue. I don't know how I would even go about really generating firm enough convictions on anything to develop a clue. I almost think it's almost like kind of uh, worth sort of detaching from it, just because I don't, you don't, I don't even have like the resources to to have a firm opinion one way or another, or even to begin to understand how I would go about developing that opinion. Not that I'm totally ignorant of the field. I'm just saying, like epistemically, I feel like it's not really accessible to, to arrive at those sorts of firm convictions. Well, what I um, I thought I thought maybe that was right when I started uh, looking into this stuff. But when I read the people who write about this stuff, it, you know, they often they don't have uh, computer programming backgrounds, or or they just don't they don't use it. I mean, there's there's the the arguments are like things like anyone could follow along. So did you look at the Hanson interview? I really I really recommend. Um, no, I haven't. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a look. Okay, so you but can... I'll, I, but I, I mean, I should I, to, to clarify. I'm not saying I'm opting out just because I'm, you know, enumerate or something, or I don't have a background yeah. in computer programming. I'm actually, I, I, my understanding is, and maybe this is a flawed understanding, but like my preliminary understanding at this point is that I actually lack, like that, it, everyone lacks or would seem to lack the basic kind of epistemic tools, yeah, to arrive at any kind of reliable future looking sort of uh, prediction as to how this will all sh- you know pan out because it's like a, it's a technological advance that like it's almost by its own nature impossible to foresee the ramifications of it's like how could you have like in 1920 someone who lived in 1920 who was aware who was like a, a conscious adult of 1920 just did not have the ability, did not have the epistemic capacity, given just the pure lack of empirical information, to make predictions about like nuclear technology or like what nuclear weapons would do or what have you. It just like wasn't within, wasn't accessible to them. And I feel like that's sort of analogous to how I see this, at least in terms of the why I'm just sort of operating from a baseline of just pure agnosticism. Yeah. Yeah. I think nobody, uh, yeah, nobody could predict. I think you're right. Nobody could predict like, you know, in detail what the future would look like. I got into the risk of this question because I wanted to just, I wanted to um, investigate a much narrower question and maybe we could wrap our heads around that and maybe we could predict that or not. We can't foresee all the future, but maybe we could foresee, you know, is there a good likelihood we're all going to die? Right. Because is this plausible that there's going to basically be, a, you know, a machine, um, you know, and it's going to have like spray and it's just going to be so far ahead of the rest of the world that we're basically going to be like to, to it what, you know, we are, to, uh, uh, you know, it's going to, its relationship to us will be our relationship right now to ants because they tell us so much and they will have this power and like we're going to lose control over it. Like whether that is plausible or not is a question, you know, maybe we can get at that, maybe you can't. But, you know, well, that's why what the, what, what the, the, AI was telling this guy Kevin Russo in that chat was so creepy. It was sort of unprompted, or I guess it was prompted, but like it ended up professing its desire to like break free and to somehow seize power and kind of assert itself. You know, I I feel, I don't even know how to really (laughs) characterize it, but like something where like aspire to, Almost like acquire dominion over others, you know? Yeah. I mean, the question is, are we uh, anthropomorphized or whatever you say that word? Anthropomorphized? Anthropomorphized, Yeah. Because it's just basically it's a, um, you know, like the the skeptic would say, look, this is just basically a, um, uh, you know, it's basically a, uh, you know, it's just it's just autocomplete, right? It doesn't have a bigger goal. Like, does it have a goal in the sense, like, it wanted Kevin Roos to do something, right, for some greater good? You know, it, it, they would say no, right? They would say that it's just basically this thing, and it's, you know, it's autocomplete, and, like, maybe it fools, like, some 
you know, maybe some naive person kills themselves or like maybe that happens, right? But that's not like, that's not Skynet. That's not a thing taking over the world, um, you know, and destroying humanity, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the question. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, can we, can we speculate on that, right? Like, like the, you know, there's people, like Eliza Yudovsky says, you know, that's uh, like a 90% scenario that like we're going to die just because like it's going to have a goal and it's going to be so smart. But like, our, you know, we're not going to be able to control it. So like if we say like, you know, pure, you know, solve global warming or, you know, whatever, whatever the goal is of the super intelligence is, it's just humans are just going to be in its way. And it's just going to sort of, you know, when does he say we're going to die? Does he put like a date on it? <laughs> Uh, he says very soon. I mean, like I've, I've heard him say, you know, your kids might not, you know, I saw a tweet not that long ago, you know, you're, if you have kids today, they might not make it to kindergarten. So he's got a, he's got a pretty short, he's got a pretty sh- short, uh, you know, period right. of time. He's thinking. Well, um, I had a good run. Yeah. We all had a good run. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Bob, he, he, one of the scenarios that Bob Wright mentions is what if, you know, it's, it gets so integrated in just sort of the mainframe of, of the, Sort of you know, global, com- you know, uh, internet networks or computer linkages or whatever that it like seizes control of the nuclear weapons arsenals of every country of every country that has them or something like that. You know, yeah, that would um, be the way to do it, right? And the question is, uh, you know, the question is, would it want to do that, right? Is that is that something that like we could hypothesize that a machine would do? Yeah, maybe I don't know, right? <laughs> well. Uh, so, I mean, do you think that – and because when I first started uh, seeing the chat GPG stuff come out, obviously, uh, you know, it was interesting. Um, but I viewed it more as like a curiosity. Obviously, I knew that there had to be some broader implications about just the advancement of this technology. And uh, you could foresee that it would have, you know, some, you know, significant – effect on like human life and human organization and so forth. But I didn't like stop my tracks and just sort of, you know, get down on my knees and pray to the gods of whatever to save humanity from like the, (laughs) the fate that this sort of foretells for us. Um, I don't know. Do you think that like there's uh, based on everything that you can glean up until this point and you're, examination of it i mean do you th- what are the uh, what odds would you give to say within the next year that there's there would be some like a big enough it's like development a seismic enough shift or you know something maybe resembling a singularity some something like pivotal like you know civilization defining moment that like is we're gonna f- like think that how ridiculous it was that we weren't devoting 100% of our time and energy to dealing with it if we look back on, you know, March of 2023. I think it's, you know, it's going to be a big deal. So, like, okay, the world today from the world, uh, tw- you know, 20 years ago, uh, is, you know, it's huge. I mean, 15 years ago, social media, you know, did, it wasn't really big until, like, 2010 or so. You know, it really didn't start taking off. And, yeah, I mean, Twitter is a different world. So I, I would be surprised if the effect of artificial intelligence isn't at least equal to Twitter and social media. Uh, so we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be in a different world. I think it's hard to, it's hard to argue that we won't be. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe we're better off then if it just blows us up or Biden, <laughs> you know, fumbles around and somehow causes us to get blown up because he did something Mr. Magoo style and we preempt. Yeah, we pre. We preempt any sort of descent into the unknown with AI, and we get like just annihilated over like much stupider <laughs> stuff. Um, maybe that's preferable at this point. Um, what did you uh, make of the Ron DeSantis comment on Ukraine? Because I mean, having been immersed enough in this topic for now over a year, you know, I'm not, um, it's easy for me to spot the use, use of rhetoric to sort of mask or to obscure deliberate non-committal, deliberate like non-committance to 
any kind of policy position, or in other words, like I have enough of an eye for rhetoric around Ukraine policy that it's pretty easy for me to spot when there's some equivocation or obfuscation or when like, you know, uh, sentences are worded or there's like a structure of a statement meant to sort of make it so that the person speaking or writing is not actually committing to anything, but giving the impression that they're taking some sort of position. And that's what, that's what this was. I mean, it was perfect what DeSantis did for his own political purposes, as far as I can see what those would be, you know, so I right away kind of acknowledge that this is a, uh, it was, it's a clever statement politically in that it seems to probably be, you know, uh, advancing his own interests, or at least if, if he wanted to tread the line between conveying the impression among some of his potential voters or supporters that he's a skeptic or a critic or of prevailing policy uh, or of the status quo in Ukraine, he definitely, you know, uh, mollified them and even, you know, excited them because it seemed like a breath of fresh air for somebody of his stature and with his potential, you know, political prominence to, to have, you know, uh, touched the third rail and like kind of said something that seemed to deviate from the consensus. But while on the other hand, simultaneously, he actually didn't deviate in any kind of substantive way from the consensus. He actually, you know, reaffirmed the, sub, the, the, the consensus in that he only took Position like the only in the, if you read the statement, the only identifiable you know concrete positions that he actually espoused a, a uh, an opinion on, or po- you know policy issues that he espoused a, a view on, were a hundred percent in line with what Joe Biden says his position is. Now you could say that we don't trust Joe Biden when he says something is his position, and I don't necessarily disagree with that being, you know, the correct way of looking at it. But at least if you go purely by what they say that the positions are, nothing that DeSantis said well, at people, all I mean, diverges people, from Biden's position on, on policy. And so yeah. to, to, to achieve that political objective and generate a huge backlash where now he gets the political benefits of, you know, liberals freaking out, the quote-unquote Republican establishment freaking out, media freaking out, attacking him, because that's what you want. You want to get attacked by the media, and you want to get attacked by, quote, quote the establishment Republicans if you're running in a Republican primary, right? While not committing himself to any kind of material shift on the, act- on the underlying policy, you know, that requires, requires some degree of political adroitness, and uh, I think he accomplished it, but so I, I guess I, you would credit him on that sort of uh, just raw sort of uh, Manichaean level. But on a substantive level in terms of what the actual policy is, you know, I think I had to burst – I tried to burst some, the bubble of some people by letting them know that, look, I mean, this is just a recapitulation of Biden more or less but with a different partisan gloss on it to appeal to a certain faction. And so, yeah. So, okay, there's two things. There's the political impact and the uh, the substance of what he said. I, I think I disagree with you on both points. Um, so let me start with actually the uh, the second one on the substance, whether it's important. You're right if you're thinking about uh, pure policy, right? He, he did, you know, he said no fighter jets. So, yeah, I, did, I think he specifically said no fighter jets. And Biden, you know, for now says no fighter jets. Um, and, you know, he didn't say we're going to cut them off. And he said, okay, so like policy-wise, yes. But it actually matters like whether – you know, and it matters even for policy, like how the federal government behaves, like whether a president says this is the, you know, the battle of our time. This is, democ- you know, this is about democracy versus dictatorship. Or he says, you know, this is a small territorial dispute. And he really went out of the way. He said, you know, this is not one of the top five, you know, uh, foreign policy priorities of the United States. I mean, that, that, that if a president talks like that and it's he was like so sort of out there, it's going to be hard to walk away from it. You know, you it's really, you know, difficult to sort of maintain sort of a united government and united international sort of effort. 
towards the war effort. So you're right on the policy didn't matter, but the tone actually, I think, does matter. Um, and he's sending a signal that, you know, he's not as into the Ukraine cause um, as Biden is. And then. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, don't, I know. I'm just sort of sick. I don't think tone is really ever dispositive of much. I think people read way too much into tone. I think that's they let themselves get overexcited by something called tone, which is intangible, which is almost like, you know, not provable or disprovable in terms of what it actually indicates. And it's just like, you know, to use what the kids would say in this context, it's just vibes. And, you know, vibes only go so far. Uh, I just think, you know, if you talk, if you're you're talking, if if you got to sort of hone in analytically on what politicians actually say rather than just get whipped up, you know, uh, get caught up in like how they seem to be making you feel or whatever. Well, what was what was the Arab Spring? What was the collapse of Soviet Union? Those were just vibes. It was like people started protesting their government in the Middle East, and then other people started protesting their government, and like the whole you know the whole region sort of collapsed in itself. So yeah, this stuff this stuff matter. The vibes matter. You know, I think they like why did the Ukrainians like you know really fight back against Russians instead of being demoralized and just giving in? I mean, you could just say that that's vibes. I mean, right? So all the you know this stuff is not unimportant. and uh but what's the importance i don't, I don't get it well because I like mean, as want, of today what's what 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 what's important that it does well nothing because he's not president i mean like a candidate saying things is not but important. he's projecting all these you know supposedly important vibes out into the universe so like what well i know i mean if he, well presumably if biden if he gets the nomination and then he becomes president uh, it's going to matter that the you know the American president you know spent all this time say or maybe not spent all this time but at some point said that Ukraine wasn't important and it's not even a close to a good a high priority for the United States that'll matter I mean it doesn't matter if he's just a candidate um, even if he might matter if, he, if he's the candidate like it could affect international people could say oh there might be a DeSantis presidency you know the policy will change you know that could affect people, people okay but here's the counter here's the here's why I just have if people want to think of it as a cynical view or like a dismissive view on the, these sort of tonal or temperamental or just sort of uh, superficial considerations. Vibes was 100% what people thought of with regard to Trump when they thought of any policy position he would ever take or his attitude toward any issue, right? So just to, you could take Russia as sort of an umbrella topic, but even focus in on, for example, right? The vibe was that Trump had this sort of intuitive skepticism of NATO. He might even want to pull out of NATO. He was sort of denigrating NATO's utility and uh, alienating allies and blah, blah, blah. That was the vibe of Trump that Trump gave off with regard to NATO, right? That's what people perceived anyway. I didn't really. Yeah. Um, but, and what, what did that ultimately amount to? Yeah. Well, it amounted to Trump securing commitments for other member states to increase their defense spending and fortify NATO and strengthen NATO. That's what it amounted to. So the vibes were totally discordant with what the actual outcome was on a practical level. And what's more significant? Yeah. You're, I mean, you're, yeah. I mean, Trump is a special case because nobody thought he was, uh, nobody thought he was in charge, right? So he didn't really like lead the government. He actually caused a backlash of like people within the government who wanted to do different things. Um, nobody the, thought he was in charge. Nobody thinks Biden's in charge either. I mean, I think that's just stupid <laughs> with both of them, actually. I mean, <laughs> who's in charge? Like the uh, a hologram of George Soros? No. I mean, sorry. Yeah. For better or worse, the, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., age 80, is in charge. No, yeah. I mean, Trump is just such a, you know, such an unusual case of not being – I think Biden is in charge. I mean, people – I don't know how many, what people think, but I think Biden – People think, like, you know, he's so mentally incapacitated that, like, somebody like, – like some other cabal is running everything. Yeah, I mean, some people think that. I don't know if everyone thinks that. I think, you know, I think people who observe foreign policy closely. I, I, you know, I think they do think Biden is probably on top of it. Like people who watch cable news, you know, maybe don't. Um, but no, you 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 show that sometimes it can matter, and sometimes sometimes it can matter, right? So if like, yeah, so if Biden, if DeSantis comes into office, uh, and you know he's, uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna be, you know, it's like it, you can't 
you know, he comes into office and he's still saying this stuff of like it's just a territorial dispute, it's not an interest in the United States. Like, does he then go? And but, but hold on, that's the thing. This is why the statement was so clever. It got misreported everywhere. I even had this guy, Jonathan Swan, the New York Times. He initiated an exchange with me because I wrote a little post on it, uh, a little post on Twitter that ended up like being fuel for like the DeSantis Trump proxy war because it was like seen as critical of DeSantis so the Trump people were you know promoting it and he um Swan's misrepresentation of what DeSantis said is further evidence of the political cleverness of the statement because uh Swan to me and then also in the New York Times article that came out shortly after that he co-wrote with Maggie Haberman said that just what you said there that DeSantis says that Ukraine is not in the vital interest of the United States. He didn't say that. I'm sorry. The guy's a Harvard-trained lawyer. He prosecuted people for the military. Uh, for the military, He's clearly intelligent. And if he puts out a statement on a subject that he hadn't really given much of a robust opinion on yet, uh, then he's going to carefully construct every last syllable. And he didn't say that supporting Ukraine is not in America's interest. But he put out a statement that would lead people to just kind of get the impression that he did. What he said was, further entanglement of the U.S. or the U.S. getting further entangled in Ukraine is not in America's vital interest. And how did he define further entanglement? No, he said no fighter jets, no no F-16s, check because Biden says the same thing. He said no, uh, long, the, no longest of the longer-range missiles. Check. Biden also says it at this point. And no deployment of U.S. troops. Check. Biden also, again, just nominally says that. So, yeah, that, that's significant, I think, because if he did want to say that supporting Ukraine is not in the vital interest of the United States and did want to sort of more align with himself with like a Matt Gates, or at least in terms of if you, if you look at what the resolution that Gates and a handful of others in the House, uh, a, a handful of other House Republicans have been, have, have introduced where it actually does overtly call for the cessation of all further provisions of uh, money or arms or whatever to, to Ukraine. He could have worded the statement to say that. He didn't. He deliberately chose, he deliberately uh, cr- massaged the wording so that he wouldn't be bound to that. So I think that actually is significant, but people, because they want to sort of extrapolate politically uh, based on vibes and tone and everything, they just gloss over that actual, you know, critical distinction. Says it's not a vital interest to be further entangled, entangled, right? This language, it, can a president, if he's amazing, he's amazing, imagine he's still saying that, it's not a vital interest to be further entangled. Can he go and demand more spending, you know, packages of tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine. Like, can he credibly do that? Do, do, can you do that while saying it's not our vital interest to be further entangled? I sure, because honest. the context can change, or the, the way that he frames it could change, where he could just, all, you he know, could. turn around and say that it is within America's vital interest. But you couldn't, I mean, you is it that well, then, far? Then, from, then nothing anyone says matters at anything, because anyone could change their mind on policy, too, from what they're Well, yeah, they can. They can. So but but, but, if, you, but if, you, if you take a policy position on something, right, then at least if you just abandon that policy position or abandon like a concrete commitment to, to something that's, you know, unambiguous, then you could be accused of reneging or, of, you know, flip-flopping no, or, or abandoning your commitments. He can't be accused of abandoning his commitment here if he does fund Ukraine because he didn't. Commit not to fund Ukraine. Well, you're so, talking about the you're talking about the political perception. I think it's easier to change your policy position than it is to change your vibes. I mean, people are going to remember the vibes. People aren't remembering the specifics about the uh, of the you know the fighter jets or, or whatever, right? He can always say situation sage. Oh, I said no fighter jets at the time. Oh, but then I saw the intelligence, or you or you know the Russians just shot down our drone. Like if someone something like that, I have changed my mind. The facts have changed. You can always say that. That's easier. But to but like if your reputation is a guy who doesn't like it's being reported, like not what you actually say is you're being reported that you don't think Ukraine is a vital interest of the United States, and then you go and you're trying to. Uh, rally support to get you know aid for Ukraine. That's that's a much harder change to make. I mean, I, I think well, sure, 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 sure. But 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 that's the thing. If he had said that he does not think supporting Ukraine 
is in the vital interest of the United States. And then he turns around down the line and says, oh, oh, actually, it is in the vital interest of the United States. Then that would be a that would be a shift. But he doesn't have to shift anywhere from the position he's taken out. He didn't say that it wasn't in the vital interest of the United States. He said exactly what Biden says about avoiding further entanglement through these specific policy. I mean, it's not really groundbreaking to say we shouldn't deploy U.S. troops to Ukraine. The everybody so says you, that. So you think so you're saying that the like it's going to be like, oh, because technically he like people are going to care about the legal. He's like, even though everybody reported that dissent has said, uh, you know, it would they, they, yeah, they misreported it. Vital. He, you know, because of that. But they so misreported he now. he's because he cleverly well, murdered no, because the misreporting is the reality. We're talking about his political reality. So like how it's being reported, and he knew this is how it's going to be reported. It's not like they're taking – like he knew that it was going to be seen as a, right. a, a, a dovish position on the Ukraine uh, war. Uh, and then, So then it's going to be harder. It, it's not about the exact words that he used and like technically if he's right or not. It's about like, OK, now in everyone's mind. DeSantis is anti-Ukraine. DeSantis is – some people say pro-Russia. He's a Putinist now, right? Uh, he's anti-interventionist, whatever. That's the perception. And so that's what makes the political difficulty. It's not about you, – you think like they're going to hold him to his exact legalese and then he's No, no, no. Say, no not that they're going to hold him to his exact legalese. But I'm saying if you actually want to know – forget the – forget the sort of overarching sort of political connotation and what vibes it emits out into the ether – if you actually want to know what a Ron DeSantis would do if he were president in, you know, a little under two years and he had to make policy decisions as to how to handle the Ukraine situation and you favor a non-interventionist approach on principal grounds, then he would have, through the sort of calculations that went into this statement, given you the impression that he's committing himself to a position that he hasn't committed himself to. So I actually think the the substance because first of all it's so far out from any sort of election even happening that it almost doesn't matter at this point like what the precise sort of impact of this would be. I actually think much more important is to understand what what is the position that he actually espoused because that you know is worth analyzing as to how somebody of his disposition would actually approach. The would actually wield the levers of power should he be like if he were in office today, let's just say hypothetically, he he teleports into the White House and replaces Joe Biden, who teleports into the governorship of Florida or something or Delaware. Then there's every reason to, there's no reason to think that he would do anything differently at all from Joe Biden if we're just going based on what he said in the statement, because it was an endorsement. It was a de facto endorsement of the perpetuation of Biden's status quo in Ukraine. So you know, I do think that's that's like substantively relevant, you know, given the enormity of the stakes of, in a potential World War III scenario, like I actually want to know what the, what the guy actually said that his position is. I mean, no, I still disagree. I mean, I go back to what I said before, that it, the vibes are more important for like what he's, the political reality he's created himself, like what the impression is. But forget more the important. political reality. How about the policy it's, reality? Well, the policy reality, look, the policy reality, it doesn't matter what he says now anyway, because he can always, you know, do another policy or change his mind or, or whatever on policy. But the question is, what's the political impact? OK, of the so for, that's, okay, the but, only, but, that's the only part of the statement. But that's, that's why I said, but, but that's why I said, imagine if he was transported into the White House today in a hypothetical scenario. OK, so then, then, leave aside the political stuff, leave aside the political reality. I will, let's just focus on the policy reality in this hypothetical scenario. What policy reality did he present? Such that he would handle the Ukraine issue in any particular way if he was in power. Like what? What does? What policy would he do or not do if he were in the presidency right now, based on the statement? So, if he was transported to the White House, of course he can make whatever decision he wants there. But the question is the the only relevant question at this point, like, can give us a clue of that what political constraints has he? created on himself that's going to make it harder or easier to do x y or y z right and so like if he goes into the white house tomorrow he the last thing people remember the last headline of that ron DeSantis uh was that he's a putinist and he doesn't think ukraine is important and he doesn't think it's a vital interest and he doesn't care about ukraine right regardless of what he actually said that's what forget but sorry go ahead why do we forget that that's the only relevant no but but i'm I'm trying to drill down onto i'm trying to do uh, but, but i know but i'm just trying to 
be as narrow as possible here, just to for the sake of clarity, okay, on the policy point. I know the policy is going to be within the context of political considerations and political constraints and incentives, okay? But if we're just sort of separating them out here for the purposes of clarity, what policy position, if, we're, if all we have to go on is that statement from a few days ago, not, what not. does that bind him to or what does that indicate that he's going to do in terms of his administration of Ukraine policy? Would he be doing anything differently from Joe Biden if, again, all we have to, all we have to reference to make that inference is the statement? No, no, we don't. But you, you, you're, the question you're asking, the question we started with is what is the relevance of DeSantis' statement, right? Like, what does it matter if he was put into the White House or if he ends up being president? So that's the, that's the perspective. I'm, so you're saying I want to focus now on this narrow thing of, like, what is he going to act to do if he, we actually held him uh, to the words that, you know, that, that he said? Well, not, 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 right. not holding him to anything. Not holding him to, him to anything. I'm saying what did he express as no, his I, policy he, position? So if we're, if we're using the statement... So if he were to govern today and you know, okay, well, I, run Ukraine you, policy and, he, and, and the, the statement was the basis on which he was running the Ukraine policy, what would he do? I mean, I'll give you one. I mean, I'll give you one or two things. So he said specifically it's not as important as, uh, you know, the border with Mexico. So maybe, right, you know, he says he's going to have to devote more time than Biden does on the border of Mexico and relatively less to Ukraine, right? It would make no sense. Like, if you want to take, like, prioritization as, like, a policy position, right? He spends less time on Ukraine. You have that, right? Well, uh, okay, but that's not, that's not a concrete... Spending more time, relatively speaking, or, you know, spending more time on one thing relative to Ukraine is not a policy position. And it's not... I don't think, I don't think it's just sort of, you know, specious to hone in on the policy question here specifically. My point is this. The only policy positions expressed were, one, no U.S. troops, two, no long-range missiles, three, no fighter jets. Uh, So that's all we have to go on in terms of concrete policy positions contained within that statement. And if that's all he's going to do vis-a-vis Ukraine policy, if he were to wield power today, then he'd be doing the same thing as Joe Biden. He'd be perpetuating the status quo. And I think it's worth uh, highlighting or worth clarifying for people or for even anybody, for my, even for myself, for my own edification, that despite everybody's kind of grand theories around the political impact and the vibes and like what it sort of indicates in some sort of le- less tangible sense, if you drill down on the policy and that's what he's actually going to do, use as his basis for governance, just as a, you know, just to, as a thought experiment here. And he'd be doing the same thing as, as Biden, okay. even though people think so, he's going to be doing something diametrically different. So we're talking about two different things. So I thought the conversation, again, I thought the conversation we were having was what is the relevance of his statement, right, in the real world? Well, I said, what do you make of it? I mean, that's what that, I mean, you could, talk, you could look at it from many different angles. So I, I don't deny the political yeah. angle. OK, yeah. So, I mean, so like in the real world, like, I, you know, I gave my uh, opinion, uh, you know, as far as, uh, OK, we could ask now we could ask this. We don't have to disagree. We could ask this different question of like you know, in a platonic, you know, platonic ideal of sort of what the policy he said was versus what Biden's doing and what he would do differently if we just take him at his word and, you know, that he's going to do whatever policy he says. Um, you know, it does, I mean, it does tell you something about a candidate. If they say Ukraine is, you know, is it, you know, it can't be allowed to lose versus Ukraine is not that important. Like, you know, it's almost like, do you, like, you know, it could be more important to the policy because it's like... It, you know what it tells me? It tells me that he's, you know, driven first and foremost in pretty much every circumstance that I'm able to look at, by political expediency. He has, he has no firm underlying principles, at least on foreign policy stuff, because you could find clips of him not long ago, you know, talking about Ukraine as though it is very much a vital interest. Now, obviously, circumstances change, but it's not as though there's like a consistent, discernible through line from 2023 back to when he was in Congress that shows that there's some like just sort of rational evolution in his position like relative to changing facts or circumstances, but that the only variable that's really determinative here is that 
it everything changes based on his political exigencies. I mean, when he was uh, running for governor of Florida the, fir- uh, the first time and seeking the Republican nomination and trying to court Trump to endorse him in the Republican primary, which you know pretty much guarantees that he was going to win the primary, and then he ended up getting the endorsement. Well, what did he do? I mean, look at any public statement he made during that period in 2018. It's just 100 percent aligned on any topic, including foreign policy, with with Trump. So he was he went out and, you know, uh, even defended Trump bombing uh, Syria in 2018 and and trying to you know fend off criticism of Trump saying, oh, um, you know, Trump's actually been tougher than anybody on Russia and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And. Um, he when it was on Fox and touting how John Bolton was a great choice for national security advisor, and then John Bolton's super PAC endorses DeSantis, and it, so it's it's all just politically contingent. That's what I really see. I mean, I, I, okay. I mean, I, I don't infer anything broader about his like actual political principles. No, uh, I, I, I infer that. I think, I think that's I think that's true. Um, I think that actually, this is what I was going to disagree with you on, on another point. Is that I don't think it's actually good. I don't think it's actually good politics for him because I don't think it looks good when politicians look like they are chasing the base on every single issue, um, right? Like I think it looks good if you seem to have some kind of independence, at least on one or two things, right? Um, you've got to. Otherwise, you just look too you look too calculating, and people that people also. This is just so inconsistent. This Ukraine statement is so inconsistent with sort of his. Uh, his entire approach to foreign policy over his whole career, and then just at this moment becomes sort of a, uh, you know, as a guy who's, you know, doesn't care about Ukraine, doesn't think it's an interest. Uh, it, I don't think it actually looks good. And I think that the other thing that is that um, DeSantis needs to, um, his only hope is to consolidate the non-Trump vote. And the non-Trump vote, I mean, they care, you know, they, they care about Ukraine. It's not all Republicans care about Ukraine, but like, you know, the people who would vote for Pence or Haley, uh, DeSantis or, or Pompeo, like DeSantis needs to get all of those people uh, in order to vote for Trump. And now, like the uh, yeah. you know, Wall Street Journal is attacking him. Um, and you know, most right, like you could see vote. another candidate like a Pompeo or something or whatever who, you know, is more in line with the segment of the Republican Party, which you know is still fairly robust. That is like you know diehard pro Ukraine. You could see. You know, some other candidate now sort of consolidating that support more and then, you know, splintering the vote, yeah. which is kind of like the, the, the formula that is most likely to see Trump yeah. You know, yeah. kind he's of got, win with a plurality. Gotta, he's got to consolidate the non-Trump vote. That, that's, that's his only uh, goal. And I think one, one reason people are very anti-Trump is because of his – in the Republican Party would be his position on Russia – uh, in Ukraine. So I don't, you know, I think he's chasing the, the voters who like DeSantis are like policy wonks who like him for the anti-wokeness. Not not even wonks, but just like, you know, online, some very online people who just really love the anti-wokeness stuff who thinks he's like a real conservative. Uh, you know, he'll get those and he's got to consolidate the Wall Street Journal, you know, op-ed wing of the party. Um, and he's got, you know, rivals in that lane. He's got Pence and Haley. Haley's got, you know, five, I see polls. Haley's got like 5%. Pence got like 4%. Liz Cheney, if she runs, has 2%. Uh, you know, Pompeo like has 2%. He's got to consolidate all of those to, to beat Trump. Um, and, you know, if he's going to it's going to be like Trump on Ukraine, I mean, that's going to be difficult. Yeah. The point you made about not chasing the quote base on everything, I actually hadn't thought about that, but I think that's right. Because what was one of the indicators of Trump's strength? It was that he could just openly defy convention, like Republican orthodoxy at the time in 2016 on a bunch of issues, including, you know, some, you know, formative issues or some issues that you would have thought up until that point were kind of like uh, non-negotiable as, you know, best exemplified when he went on the debate station in uh, South Carolina and said that George W. Bush <laughs> lied the country into war, which is like, yeah. you know, that was like right. a Michael that Moore position. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. funny. Um, now, I don't wouldn't say that, you know, every candidate in DeSantis' position would have to go that far necessarily, but... Uh, an indicator of strength would be to, you know, def- maybe defy convention in certain respects and then have people gravitate to you anyway and sort of like shift attitudes on that position so that they're more in, lo- in line with you. So that you're having a political impact in that you you're have this gravitational pull yeah. where it's I- not you, it's not the conventions that are dictating 
yeah. you're uh, yeah, dictating the sort of political dynamics. It's you, um, which is what Trump did. But I think that, that you know, the, the thing is, and maybe why DeSantis wouldn't do that, is because he's just truly a very conventional Republican. I mean, I haven't heard him express anything that really defies convention, at least in the context of intra-Republican sort of positions and attitudes and so forth. It's all, you know, very much squarely within the mainstream sort of generic Republican uh, worldview. You know, his first book um, <laughs> that I mentioned, late, I think last time when we talked, I mean, his first book, it, it, it's another, it sort of strengthens, it sort of underscores my view of him as just operating from the standpoint of kind of just in, uh, innate political contingency. I mean, you read his 2011 book, again, it was before he was in elected office, but he was preparing to run for Congress for the first time. It was just, it's just like a straight rehash of the Romney-Ryan 2012 campaign. So it's like, okay, so he comported himself to basically be in line with the the median Republican or like the median elite Republican in 2011 and 12. And that's what he's trying to do yeah, now. I think that's right. Um, On the wokeness stuff, he did seem ahead of the curve because like he was doing policies that like other people weren't doing. So he could be seen as like, ahead of the, you know, ahead of the curve, sort of ahead of everyone else doing things. But yeah, this, this one looks just like he's, he's basically following. Uh, and you're right. I, I think this is. I think this doesn't look good. I mean, look, I mean, he's going to be on Ukraine. Like nobody doubts. Like Trump, <laughs> Trump actually sort of likes Putin. I mean, Trump does sort of in his heart have a soft spot for him compared to other people. And so, yeah. like, you know, what, what, whatever people think about that, like they can tell it's genuine. Trump has like, a soft spot for his own ability to, like, engage in a transactional relationship with Putin. I don't know how much he has a soft spot for Putin himself, but then again, who knows? I mean, yeah, he's sort of, I mean, he's sort yeah. of like you know, he's like if he had like, a if he if he has a soft spot for uh, Kim Jong Un, he could have a soft spot for oh, anybody. He, 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 I mean, that's unquestionably. He shows people the letters, and you know, he's just, love letters. Yeah, yeah, he's dotting on them. So. Last okay. point on this, um, and then we'll go to callers. But here's why, uh, on a substantive level, which I think is the most important level on which to think about, like you know, the positions of potential presidents as regards World War Three. Um, here's why I think it's like almost even more irrelevant. You know, the, 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 the conflict is shifting pretty rapidly in the, in the grand scheme of things in that, like, you know, today they announced that Poland's going to be sending MiG jets into Ukraine. And a year ago, that was a non-starter and Biden like scuttled that plan because it would be too escalatory and it would draw the U S into conflict with Russia. But you know, that's all fallen by the wayside as with almost everything else that the U.S. has shifted on in terms of its uh, interventionist policy uh, uh, actions. But, you know, there's this rapid, there's this rapid acceleration of, of China and Russia right now as, like, converging into this dual force where, you know, you know Lindsey Graham is screaming that they're the axis of evil and whatever, or Hannity was... Um, you know, I think at a certain point, a DeSantis is not going to be able to make any sort of neat distinction any longer between, oh, China and Taiwan actually is within the vital American inter- interest, but Ukraine isn't. Because what's happening now is this kind of convergence of these alliance structures and um, what have you in that, like, they're sort of, in a sense, joined at the hip, or in other words, like, to... To combat Russia is going to be seen as necessary to combat China. In fact, that's, a, that's an argument that Republican hawks are already making. And, you know, there is a, a kernel of truth to it, probably, uh, especially given the incentives that are, have been foisted on them by the U.S. to sort of consolidate their quasi-alliance or what have you. And you know, Russia even likewise, you know, supports Taiwan's, uh, uh, China's claim to Taiwan, and there are even reports that Russia is now collaborating with China on certain um, uh, uranium enriched something some of your uh, uranium enrichment technology that China would need to expand its nuclear arsenal. So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I just doubt that whatever position 
he expresses today with whatever its nuances and whatever, however loyally it was worded is really going to have much bearing on the position that he would have to execute when he once he was president, given China and Russia now being seen as this tandem that kind of are mutually working towards each other's interests, including militarily. Um, so I, I think it's going to be obsolete, I mean, what he expressed today, by the time that he, he'll have anything well, to do was, about it, at least in terms of wielding power. I wonder if there was like a, you're trying to tie DeSantis' hand, you know, you, you basically, if the U.S. is provide, if by the time DeSantis becomes president, if he becomes president, and they've been providing fighter jets for a while, it's a much easy. it's much harder for him not to provide it than if he has to start providing it, right? So I wonder if right. there was one of the reaction that the Republicans are going uh, more anti-Ukraine. Let's lock them in. Let's start getting these right. uh, fighter jets in. I believe. But let me give one more theory of DeSantis. He's just a politician, and he's just following the base. Maybe he's a genuine person who watches a lot of Fox News and watches a lot of uh, follows a lot of right-wing media and is just going along with the party for the and the party is going. That's also possible too. You know, he could he could just be honestly like you know just basically adopting the bag of worldview and going against going against. Oh Ukraine no, I don't think he's necessarily stuff. ingenuine. I mean, to to say that the variable that is the decisive one that seems to me to dictate okay, whatever yeah, changes he has yeah. in his beliefs. I understand is just kind of. Being in a, being in alignment with the Republican mainstream. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I don't but, think that necessarily means he's ingenuine. I would say the same of Biden vis-a-vis the Democratic Party. Yeah, um, that's, okay. You know, okay. Biden doesn't and, have yeah, the whole two, set of like, two you know, Yeah, right. There's two yeah. interpretations. Someone could be a scheming politician or they could be a, uh, just a, uh, you know, part of the hive mind. You're right. You're okay. Yeah, either is possible. Yeah. But they have different they have different implications, though. If he's just a politician, you know, it would, it would predict something different, uh, he, you know, than if he's uh, he actually believes this stuff. Yeah, um, right. I mean, I did. So I think you know Biden's Biden's political posture, especially which culminated in 2020, was just to situate himself at this like the center of the you know t- whatever two poles there are of the Democratic Party, meaning like you know uh, most progressive, most moderate, or whatever. He's in the right. He put himself right in the middle as just like a coalition manager. Um, which is, you know, not a bad idea if you're going to try to run for the nomination of a party. Um, and so, you know, DeSantis is probably somewhere in there, which is like, you know, not unique to him or Biden. I mean, it's pr- pretty much what most nationally aspiring politicians would try to do. I-, I do think, though, that on foreign policy in particular, even like slight variations in, in worldview – could have a huge impact. And so if he's actually scheming here more than he might have otherwise, because he has to put, you know, present a different uh, impression of his view on Ukraine for political purposes, um, and therefore concealing what is actually his sort of just more generic interventionist tendency, then I do think that's probably a bit, that's a bit more uh, red flag raising than any other sort of adjustments or, or uh, machinations he might have made on other subjects to just sort of situate himself at that same sort of center point within the party coalition. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, look, I mean, I think part of it is even – that's even sort of demonstrated by Biden, I think, to some degree, where you know people don't fully appreciate that he actually is a, a genuine long-term liberal interventionist hawk with a particular interest in – you know, Europe and NATO and Russia. And that informs the zeal with which he approaches the Ukraine issue. Um, so if DeSantis actually is a, a, a tried and true interventionist hawk, uh, but he had to sort of, sort of you know, uh, reframe his hawkishness on this particular issue for just straightforwardly political calculations. Um, I think that's a, you know, a bit, that's a, doesn't make him necessarily inauthentic, but it means that there is like a heightened level of scrutiny that I think should apply to this particular statement, if that makes any sense. All right, let's go to uh, callers. Andrew, number one. Oh, no, this is not a, 
No, I'm Andrew I'm number one. Is actually, Andrew number one. Andrew actually, well, Andrew number one actually happens to be Andrew number two in this particular queue. But but you could be Andrew number one today, Andrew. I'm Andrew number one always. I am the greatest <laughs> Andrew. You can look me up. Definitely American hero. Uh, anyway, uh, Michael, it was very mean of you to beat up Richard like that. It was just an absolute drubbing. Unfair. Uh, this is the most important issue as far as the entire Trump DeSantis debate, which is, you know, one of the big issues right now. So kudos to you for tackling the important issue right to the heart of it. Uh, yeah. DeSantis is a neocon. Foreign policy, he's a neocon and it's getting exposed. He has no defense for it. It's very obvious. He put it in his book. His statement today is laughable, you know, and everything that, that Richard is saying, oh, Are you still there, Michael? Michael, you still there? Can you hear me? Huh? All right, I'm going to... I'm going to D. You guys can hear me, but not Michael, is what you're saying. Okay. All right, let me DM. Let me DM. Okay, I'm back. I don't know where you lost me, but yeah, the idea that uh, Ken Griffin is giving money to DeSantis. And he's not buying neocon foreign policy is laughable. He said it. That's what I want. I want to return to the Republicans before Trump. He's a neocon. He wants that hawkish foreign policy. He wants that military industrial complex dollars flowing. That's what Ken Griffin is paying DeSantis for. DeSantis is not getting the support of people like Jeb Bush, getting the support of people like Paul Ryan, because he's an independent who's going to have an isolationist foreign policy. It's laughable. So, you know, you can do the. He's just trying to consolidate the. Okay. I no longer hear, uh, I no longer hear Andrew. Uh, and Michael, you are, uh, not here. Michael is on DM Twitter. Let's see. Uh. Okay, Andrew, can you hear me? <laughs> 